Okay, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1. First Corinthians 1. In 51 AD, Paul walked into the city of Corinth all by himself. He had no backup band. He had no singers. He didn't have celebrity status. There was no crowds waiting for him to celebrate his entrance. He didn't have a book signing event. He didn't have the Jesus film to show. He didn't have the attractional strategies of modern churches. He didn't even have a coffee bar. All he had was the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And Acts chapter 18 records what Paul did. He got up on a weekly basis, and then it seems like on a daily basis, and he preached the Word. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives a testimony of what he said, and he said that he preached the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now think about that. If you were going to try to convince a city without the gospel of their need for Christ, what would you use? What would you do? Like what, what methods would you employ to be able to see them come to Christ? I mean, what strategies would you say, okay, this is what we're going to do to try to, to, try to communicate to people and to craft a message that people will want to listen to? Like what would you do to try to reach those people for Christ? Some might try pragmatism. Some might try attractionalism. Some might try sentimentalism or sensationalism. Some might appeal to science or to emotion or try to manipulate, but none of those were Paul's means to reach these people for Christ. He simply preached the word of God. He preached the message that many viewed as foolish and many viewed as powerless. Our text today teaches that God's wisdom and God's power is manifested through the preaching of the cross. It is the wisdom and the power of preaching that Christ is exalted, God is glorified, and he saves souls. So it's interesting, if you look in Acts chapter 18, the account of the start of this church in Corinth, Paul walks into this city preaches the gospel, and people come to Christ. He baptizes them, and they start the church in Corinth. And a few years later, Paul was in Ephesus, and he began to hear reports about the spiritual condition of the church. And so he wrote this letter, the letter of 1 Corinthians. And the reports that he heard about this church were not good. There were divisions. There were quarrels. There were fights. There were a lot of problems. And the major problem that he identified and that was reported to him was that of unity. Last week, we studied this. We studied really the the two types of unity found within a church. There's there's self-centered 
unity, or you could say man-centered unity. And then there's cross-centered unity, or Christ-centered unity. Now, if you were not able to be here last week because you were sick or getting your strength back, or you were in the nursery or ushering or something else, I would encourage you to please listen to that sermon. Because the really number one danger to our church is this right here, and that is a sinful type of unity, a self-centered, man-centered unity. And so in verses 10 through 16, Paul describes this man-centered, self-centered unity. Remember last week we said it's a self-centered unity that unites others to my ego, to myself through strife and self-importance, self-promotion. And self-centered unity is fueled by, by pride in this desire to be exalted. When we unify in this way, we really many times use ourselves and talk about ourselves to seek unity. We boast in ourselves. We tear others down and build ourselves up. And really, it's an attitude of pride that God hates. And it's such a serious thing that we all should consider how how that is manifested in our life. How do we seek unity in this way? On the other hand, he presents to us in verse 17, cross-centered unity. And that is unity that unites under the cross, unites in humility under the preaching of the cross. And humility really is the key ingredient. It comes before the cross where we're all equal, we're all sinners, and we all need to be saved by the grace of God. And cross-centered unity deflates the ego. It exalts Christ as we confess that we are sinners, as we confess that, that all of us have transgressed, as we seek reconciliation with each other and build each other up. And so what we're going to see today is we're going to see the same type of contrast where you had cross-centered unity versus man-centered unity. Today we're going to look at cross-centered preaching versus man-centered preaching. In fact, in verse 17 down through chapter 2, verse 5, we see this contrast between, between man-centered preaching, self-centered, you could say it that way, self-centered preaching, and cross-centered preaching. And, and chapter 1 and 2 are very unique in the New Testament in that they give us really a, a philosophy of church and a philosophy of preaching. What we do here in this 10.30 till 12 o'clock sometimes a little longer time, is odd to most people in the world. Many see this as a waste of time. Some see it as old-fashioned, outdated, unpersuasive. Some, even within the church, or who claim to be in the church, have just a very casual view of the preaching of God's word. Some ignore it. Some sleep through it. I said that at the very beginning of my sermon, just to help you out if you're going to drift off here. Some try to get out of it. When I was growing up in Indiana, the church I was at, I knew of many of my friends who would be my age as teenagers, and it was like they were always trying to figure out how they could get out of this time. My parents taught us that the most sacred time of each week was when we gathered as a church under the preaching of God's word. 
And sadly, that is absent from many homes in our churches. In our modern day, we are flippant and we're casual about the preaching of God's word. During the preaching of God's word, many scroll through their email and social media. It's amazing to me how how people can sit through a 90-minute movie at the movie theater and never have to go to the bathroom. But for some reason, during the preaching of God's word, that's, you know, 45 minutes or whatever it is, that young people can't hold their bladder. And I say that because genuinely it reflects many times, sometimes people genuinely have to go to the bathroom, but many times it reflects the heart that people have and the view people have of preaching. For many, preaching is just a weekly habit. It's a religious event. It's a boring Bible seminar. But the the problem is that God's view is so much different. He says that the preaching of the cross is actually how he displays his wisdom. That the preaching of the cross demonstrates his power. Preaching is God's time to speak to us by his spirit, with his word, about the power of Christ's cross. Over the next few weeks, what I want to study is God's philosophy of preaching from this text. This is what I want us to learn, what I really think this text teaches us, and that is that we must preach the cross because it's how God demonstrates his power and wisdom. That we must preach the cross because it's how God demonstrates his power and his wisdom. Our text will answer really the question this morning of why we as a church, why we as Lighthouse Bible Church should be committed to cross-centered preaching. And I'll confess, I'm not going to make it through all these verses today. I'm not, not going to try like I did last week. I'm just going to go through verse 17 and 18. But I think it's appropriate for us to read through this entire text. So would you stand with me for the, pre, for the reading of God's word and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, and I'm going to read through chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Corinthians 1, 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, in the weakness of God, is stronger than man. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according 
to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you will empower the preaching of your word, not because of the personality of here, up here or the person, but because of your spirit and of your cross, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, the question I want to ask this morning is why employ Christ-centered preaching rather than man-centered preaching? Why should we as a church be committed to Christ-centered, cross-centered preaching? And the answer to that is first, cross-centered preaching demonstrates that God's word is powerful and man's words and man's ways are empty. Look at verse 17. For Christ, Paul says, did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Remember, some were unifying in the church, unifying people to themselves, boasting in who they were associated with, and maybe even one who baptized them. And so Paul said, I didn't come to baptize. I came to preach the gospel. Now, this does not diminish baptism. Paul considered baptism to be an important ordinance for the church. But baptism doesn't save. God doesn't use baptism to save you. Baptism is a testimony of one's faith in Jesus Christ's work on the cross. So Paul wrote in verse 17 that Christ did not send him to baptize, but to do what? But to preach the gospel. The phrase preach the gospel is actually one Greek word, euangelezo. It's the idea of evangelizing to proclaim the good news. It literally means to herald the good news. And the picture is of a herald who comes into town, who stands on the street corner, and who announces the good news of the king. I mean, imagine you have a king or a Caesar who defeats his enemies. And so he wants to get the message out to the people, to his people. And so he sends a herald. And this herald comes and he announces to the people of that city, that the king has defeated his enemies, that he is the victor. And a herald would communicate a message that the king had, and, and the job of the herald was to faithfully communicate that message. His job was not to display his great oratory skills. 
His job was not to entertain people on the street corners. His responsibility was to be faithful, to accurately communicate what the king wanted him to tell. And what Paul wrote here is that he was a herald. He was a preacher of the good news. And so what is the good news? What is the good news that he was to herald? And it's that God sent his son as a king. And he came to be the victor, to defeat death and hell and sin. And Jesus is the victor. 1 Corinthians 15 will end this book by saying this. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The good news is that the king has come and he has gained the victory. And central to the good news that Jesus is the victor is the cross of Christ. It's because of the cross that Jesus gained the victory. And the cross was, was an instrument that the Romans used to, to torture and to execute criminals. But what's amazing is God took that evil, wicked instrument and he used it to demonstrate his love, to show mercy to us and grace. And there is no good news. There's no good news about Jesus Christ without the cross. Many want to preach and talk about Jesus Christ, but if you leave out the cross, then there's no good news. The cross was the place where the creator of life died a cruel death. The cross was the means by which the triune God showed love to the world. On the cross, Jesus was condemned so we could be justified. On the cross, he who knew no sin, he became sin for us. Through the cross, we are reconciled. We're made sons and daughters of God. Through the cross, Jesus' blood atoned for our sins. At the cross, prophecies were fulfilled. A new covenant was established. At the cross, God's wrath for sin was appeased. At the cross, there was the great exchange. Christ took our sin and gave us his righteousness. He became defiled so we could be made holy. He died so we could live. He endured wrath so we could have grace. He was judged so we could have mercy. He was separated so we could have reconciliation. He was wounded so we might be healed. He was cursed so we could be blessed. He was rejected by the Father so we could be accepted by the Father. On the cross, the eternal Son died so we could have eternal life. This is the good news of the cross. And it was God's plan to provide salvation for us through Jesus Christ's work on that cross. And it is now God's plan for us to proclaim salvation through the preaching of the cross. In fact, if you read through verse 17 through 23, you can see this cross-centered preaching and the effect of faithfully preaching the cross. In fact, look at verse 17. He says, Paul writes, for Christ sent me to do what? To 
preach the gospel. And what's the gospel about? Well, later on in verse 17, he says, it's about the cross of Christ, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Notice in verse 18, this preaching is called the word of the cross. Verse 18, the word, the message, the the proclamation of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But what is the effect of cross-centered preaching to us who are saved? But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, preaching is called the wisdom of God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly, the foolishness of what we preach. And what is the effect when we preach what people consider to be foolishness, but what God declares as wisdom? It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In verse 23, notice what his message was about. We preach Christ crucified. Verse 24, to those who are called. In other words, to those whom God divinely calls to be saved, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The power of God and the wisdom of God are displayed for the church to the preaching of God's word. What powerfully causes these lights to, to illumine our room? and for me to be amplified over the speakers. It's the power of electricity, right? If you have a truck and it is able to pull tons of weight, what what gives that truck that horsepower to do that? Well, it's a diesel engine or a gas-powered engine, depending on which one you like, and then depending on which one is the quietest, right? Oh, wait. That's right. I can always tell when Norm's coming to church when I hear that. Diesel engine coming. What, what source enables plants to have energy through photosynthesis? Well, it's that big ball of energy in the sky we call the sun. And what does God use to, uh, to powerfully awaken the mind to righteousness and the soul to life? It is the preaching of God's word. And so what is cross-centered preaching? As we Think about cross-centered preaching. What is it? Cross-centered preaching is this. This is my definition. It's it's preaching that proclaims that God in his wisdom and by his power saves through Christ's work on the cross. Cross Cross-centered preaching declares that God in his wisdom and by his power saves through Christ's work on the cross. Romans 1.16, many of you might be able to quote it, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And what is the gospel? It's that Christ died for our sins. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The preaching of the cross has the power to tear down your pride and then to build you back up with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So why should we as a church employ cross-centered preaching? Because Cross-centered preaching demonstrates that God's word is powerful. It's that God powerfully uses his word. God displays his power through the preaching of the word. And, And I'm saying that not because it's my job, although it is my job. I'm saying that because that's what God says. 
Look at verse 18. This is God's opinion. For the word that is the proclamation, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To us who are being saved, it is what? It is God's power. It's the power of God. Do we truly want to experience the power of God in our lives? The scripture says that God's power comes through his word when it's based upon the message of Christ's cross. Ephesians 6, 17 speaks about putting on the whole armor of God. And he says, take up the sword of the spirit. What is God's weapon? What is the sword that he uses to do his work? It is the word of God. And what's interesting is he says, take that, that weapon, that sword of the spirit that God utilizes, pray. And then he, he says in verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 6, pray that the words may be given to me to open my mouth, to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And so the, the word of God is like a sword that God powerfully wields. And the tip of that sword is, is the gospel. And preaching is thrusting that sword into the soul and awakening a soul to righteousness. In Jeremiah 23, God commands prophets to faithfully speak his word. And the next verse, in verse 29, he says this, Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? I mean, think about a fire that, that illuminates a dark area. Think about a fire that refines. Or think about a hammer that powerfully strikes a rock and breaks it into pieces. He says, my word is like a powerful fire, my word is like a powerful hammer. God promises that the faithful preaching of his word will powerfully work in the heart of a person. God's word can cause a person to see who they truly are. It can reveal our sin. It can, it can refine our impure hearts. It can give us faith in Jesus Christ. Look down at 1 Corinthians 1, 21. In the end of that verse, he says, it also has the ability to save. It pleased God by the foolishness, the folly of preaching to save them that believe. It has the ability to save a soul. Romans 10, 13 promises that everyone Everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord in faith, they will be saved. If you recognize your sinfulness and you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you call upon him, he promises to save you. But the question then comes in verse 14, how are those who don't hear the gospel or haven't heard the gospel, how are those to hear without someone preaching? Like there needs to be someone to preach. And verse 17 gives the answer, faith comes through hearing and hearing comes through the word of God. So God ordained the ministry of the word to be proclaimed so people could hear the gospel and they could place their faith in Jesus Christ. God values the preaching of his word. I read a part of a biography this past week that I have in my library about a missionary named John Patton. 
think I talked about him a couple of weeks ago. He was a missionary to the New Hebrides Island people. Some call him the Indiana Jones of missionary stories. He has an amazing story about going over to these islands and giving the gospel to cannibals. You know what a cannibal is, right? Right? Some of you little ones might not know. Basically, it's the idea that you go and kill someone and you eat them. And what they would do, these, these people, this, this culture, what they would do is they would defeat their enemies, kill their enemies, eat them, and try to receive what they thought was spiritual power from eating their flesh. Their culture was vile. It was wicked. They, if they didn't like something their wife was doing, if a man didn't like something his wife was doing, he would strangle her with no consequence. When the man died, the women died with him because women were seen as property and you should have your property go with you to death. They didn't care for their children. Once they were weaned, the kid just ran around and fended for themselves. They were cruel and superstitious, thieving, abusive. That is until the gospel came. Most of these people on this island that he was on, that John Patton was on, here to, as a missionary, they were unbelievers. But there was a chief named Namaki who had trusted Christ. And Namaki wanted to gather the people together and he wanted to preach to them. And he wasn't trained in preaching. He didn't go to the master's seminary or anything like that. All he knew was that he was a sinner and Jesus was the Savior. So John Patton describes this sermon and he actually details what he would have said, and he said this. The chief said, as he gathered all these people, so I want you to think about all these people gathered around. Most of them, most of them didn't have clothes on. Most of them had, you know, just a couple days before maybe eaten someone, and, you know, the bones are in their backyard. Like, this is, this is the reality. Children are running around. This is a very cruel culture. And he gathers everybody, and this chief preaches. And he says, let every man that thinks with me go now and fetch the idols of Anawa." the gods which our fathers feared and cast them down. Let us burn and bury and destroy these things of wood and stone. Let us be taught how to serve God who can hear. The Jehovah God who gave us the well, and they had dug a well, and so he was praising God they had water there, who gave us every other blessing on earth. For he sent his son, Jesus, to die for us, and bring us to heaven. And the result of that sermon was that many of those people came to Christ. In fact, most people on the island, this is in the 1800s, most people on the island came to Christ, and the culture changed. People stopped killing each other and eating each other. Husbands actually began to be devoted to their wives and love their wives. Parents started caring for their children and then they started this church. And here you had elders and deacons in the church who were once murderers who are now caring for widows. The people went from people who were vicious and cruel to those who loved. What was it that changed these people? John Patton writes, he says, I wish I could just take some, some people from England and Scotland, bring them over here and show them the transformational power of the gospel. Because what was it that changed them? It was the preaching of the cross. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look down in verse 18 and notice that the preaching of the cross 
isn't just for those without Christ. Actually, the preaching of the cross is, is also for us. It's so important for us. Verse 18, he says, Unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is not just a ticket out of hell. The gospel is necessary for our everyday living. We all need to be continually saturated with gospel-centered preaching and, and learning. We need to have the gospel and the cross on our mind every day. And in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he instructed them in 2 Corinthians 5.15 to remember the love of Christ, to keep the love of Christ in your heart and to have that compel you. And how did Christ show his love to us? 5.15 of 2 Corinthians, he died for all, that those who live, those who are alive in Christ, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. In other words, the cross of Jesus Christ should compel you and motivate you each day to, to surrender your life to Jesus Christ and to live for him by faith. So what is cross-centered preaching? Cross-centered preaching is the proclamation, is the declaration that God in his wisdom and by his power saves through Christ's work on the cross. And so why should we do that? We should preach the cross because it is the way that God shows that his word is powerful. And that's in contrast, therefore, to man-centered preaching. What is man-centered preaching? Man-centered preaching declares that man has the wisdom to persuade and man has the power to save. It's looking to oneself for salvation. It's looking to oneself for wisdom and for power. Look at verse 17. Paul wrote that God, or Christ, did not send him to preach, but to do what? Now, not to send him to baptize, but to do what? But to preach. And not with, notice what he says there in verse 17, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So notice that phrase there, not with words of eloquent wisdom. In the Greek, this is literally Sophia Logos, or wisdom words. This speaks of wisdom that comes from man. It includes man, a man-centered message. That's the idea of a man saying, I think this is the solution. It comes with the idea of man-contrived methods. So th this is how you can convince someone of this. This is, this is what will produce lasting change. And Paul here, therefore, marks out two di di um, different approaches to gaining wisdom and power. And one is to, to look to self, one is to look to man, and one is to look to Christ and his work on the cross. And so either, either as a church, you or we are employing Christ-centered preaching. That means we take the word of God, we preach the word of God, we, we are centered on Christ and believe that his work on the cross is the only way to save, or you trust and employ man-centered preaching, which means that you, that you believe that the best ideas come from our ideas. It finds power in manipulating techniques 
in entertaining congregations and appealing to our desires. And and man-centered preaching really has this idea that it comes from the self, that it exalts the self, that it values the self, and it lives for the self. John Piper wrote this about this verse. He says this, Why would the cross be emptied if Paul had come with oratorical flourishes in philosophical displays of wisdom? And he said, here's the answer. It would have emptied because he would have been cultivating in the people the very thing the cross was designed to destroy, namely boasting in man. The cross is full. The preaching of the cross is full when it's killing pride. The cross is emptied when the word of the cross is somehow being distorted to cultivate our pride. He says, this is everywhere in America today. And ultimately, and unfortunately, churches, I should say unfortunately, churches across America are filled with this man-centered preaching. And as a preacher, I confess that it's tempting to go back to this idea of man-centered preaching. It's tempting to preach based upon my ideas, in my own strength, with my own experience, as opposed to centering the message upon Christ and his work on the cross. Probably the most dangerous and deceptive means of preaching is that which encourages you to trust in yourself. There are many people, many preachers who preach men and women in many different types of churches, and they preach a gospel of self. One of the most influential preachers in the 20th century was a man named Henry Emerson Fosdick. Now, you might never have heard of him, but he was very influential. He pastored Riverside Church in New York City, which was funded and built by John D. Rockefeller. You probably heard of that at least on NBC News, you might have. Fosdek popularized faith in oneself, in love for oneself. He preached the gospel of self. He said the self was, quote, in a perpetual process of becoming. We should strive for wholeness in the self. That was his idea. He preached that the means for one's self to find wholeness or health was in self-care. And his idea of self-care was essentially to love yourself, and to accept yourself for who you are. So he had a a man-centered, self-centered, you could say it that way, sermon and and message, and his man-centered sermons influenced and infected churches and preachers in the nation. He wrote books, he was on the radio, he sent out magazine articles, One of his main disciples was a pastor known as Norman Vincent Peale. You heard of that guy? Norman Vincent Peale. He pastored a church in New York City of 5,000 people for 52 years. It's a long time. He wrote a New York Times bestseller called The Power of Positive Thinking. And for Peale, he preached that the self was basically good. He preached that, and this is a quote, The greatest problem of one's self is found in negative thinking. The solution is to think more positively about oneself and to believe in yourself. Now, you might be asking, why are you going through these two preachers? 
This is a history lesson, but this is important. Because these two preachers had a significant impact upon our culture, particularly our Christian culture. And many preachers that are famous today in our society have followed their message and really even their methods through their influence birth what some call sentimental preaching or the sentimental gospel. It's preached by people like Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, T.D. Uh, Jakes. The sentimental gospel appeals to the motion through touching stories, sometimes tableside talks that they attempt to motivate you to follow Christ through sentimentalism. Sentimental preaching puts the self at the center of God's concern. It uses scripture, it uses the cross as a means to, to heal one's inner self, to feel better about yourself, to accept yourself. That's sentimental preaching. They also modeled attractional preaching that has infected our churches. Attractional preaching is market-based preaching. It's the idea that you craft your sermon and really the whole service to, to welcome the audience and make them feel comfortable. Attractional preaching communicates what people want to hear. It packages the delivery in a way that is enjoyable for all, whether it be, they, be a believer or an unbeliever. Attractional preaching tries to set a mood with, with lights and special effects, and it crafts the sermon, and, and it, it sets up the stage to, to bring a desired result so that on Monday morning, your staff meeting, you can go through the numbers and say, this is what we did, and this is what we achieved. And sometimes attractional preaching also includes supposed healings, miracles, or at least stories about such. They also brought about moralistic therapeutic preaching. I know these are kind of some weird words to use, but think about just what the word means, moralistic. It's based upon moralism, therapeutic. Moralistic therapeutic preaching aims to heal the inner wounds of the self with moralism and pop psychology. And we could go on and on, but the point is, in the end, all of these are methods of preaching that center on man and on the self. They're based upon man's wisdom and man's methods, and they sometimes even throw in the cross of Jesus Christ in there, but really it empties the cross of its power because it's about us. It comes from us. It's not about God, about his power and his wisdom. A man-centered Preaching declares that man has the wisdom to persuade and the power to save. Mitch Horwitz, this is, he's an author of One Simple Idea. He wrote this. He, he believes that this idea of the self is actually the national religion in America. And he wrote this. Today, positive thinking is the closest America has to a national religion. It is the foundational idea of business motivation, mind-body medicine, prosperity, pastoring, and much more. It permeates speeches of figures from presidents like Ronald Reagan to Barack Obama. Yet for the millions of Americans who embrace the gospel of positive thinking about oneself, millions more revile positive thinking as cotton, candy, pseudo-theology in an unrealistic response to life. 
In other words, he's saying here that people in America in general follow this religion of self. They trust in themselves. It's, it's a man-centered religion. It's a man-centered way of approaching God. And therefore, many people in America desire this. They, they want this type of man-centered preaching because it, it feeds their ego. They want this self-affirmation. And the thing is, it's not just churches that are preaching this message. It's everywhere, right? I mean, Hollywood, celebrities, they preach this at the Oscars. This is on the internet. This is on TV shows, on talk shows. This is in kids' movies. This is the world's message. And really the truth is that there are two religions in this world. There's only two religions in this world. You're either following the religion of self, a man-made religion that trusts in yourself, or you're following Jesus Christ and his work and trusting in his work on the cross. And just think about this with me. The religion of the self believes this. You trust yourself, you look for wisdom in the self, or maybe another person in their self, not leader. So you think about this. The religionist is a self-based religion. The religionist tries to earn God's favor through religious self-effort. So if I count these beads and pray these prayers and do these acts, if I do these things, if I have enough effort, then I can, I can save myself. The atheist lives for himself. The agnostic uses his inability to know as an excuse to satisfy himself. The moralist makes and attempts to follow rules to try to appease the self's conscience. The materialist tries to get more and more to satisfy himself. The hedonist lives for the pleasure of self. The, moralist, or the authoritarian stomps on others around him to elevate himself. The powder mopes around to try to gain sympathy for himself or herself. The narcissist is consumed with himself or herself, and they're obsessed with their image, which is just a whole generation of people out there, right? Most youth today are taught the religion of self, and here's what they're taught. That the purpose of your life is to find yourself. One does that by looking down inside of yourself. And then the most satisfying and moral thing to do is therefore to express your true authentic self. Now, if you're in high school or college, you probably are hearing those types of words, and you might not have thought of it in this way, but that's a religion that follows self and trusts in self. This is not new. This is not a, a religion that just came up in America in the past few years or in the 20th century. It's been around since the fall of man. And that's why Paul was warning against this man-centered preaching Man-centered religion and man-centered preaching cannot deliver what it promises. And in, in the end, it leaves the church, it leaves the culture empty. And I think as a church, as we consider what do we value in preaching, we can so easily fall into the trap of this type of preaching that looks to a man that sinners the message upon ourselves. And sometimes it seeps into a church when we ask questions like this. How can we increase the numbers in the church? 
what is working in other churches and how can we employ that here? What, what methods and means can we copy or contrive to produce what we want? And it's not, it's not bad to evaluate. It's not bad to consider what other churches do. It's not bad to, to have numbers in the bulletin. But it's the idea is that, is that we have to contrive something. We have to manipulate something to get what we think is the desired result. But really the biblical question is this. Are we faithfully preaching Christ and him crucified? Because the power of God and the wisdom of God is displayed to the church, in the church, and to the world through the preaching of the cross. So as we end here, let me just conclude with and ask a few questions about our commitment to God's word and cross-centered preaching. Church, do we, do we come to the preaching of God's word and expect God's power to change our life? Do we come to maybe a time like this, or maybe even you're listening to a sermon on, on the radio or on your iPod, or I guess they don't have iPods anymore, iPhone, and do you expect God to work through that in your life? Are you seeking him to change you by the work of Jesus on the cross? Do we take preaching serious? Do we really believe that that those who are being saved, that we who are being saved, that we have the power of God upon us and in our midst when we have faithful preaching of the cross. Are we as a church, are we coming before Christ and humbling ourselves before him, denying ourselves, following him as we consider his work on the cross? Our prayer as a church should be that Christ will be exalted, not a, a person, not an elder, not a deacon, not even you, that we would lift Christ, that he would be glorified, that he would save souls, that he would change our life. And the way that God displays his wisdom and his power is through the preaching of the cross. Are we committed to cross-centered preaching? Maybe you're in here and you're without Jesus Christ. His call to you today is to call upon him. And he promises, if you do, if you turn from the religion of self, you confess your sin and your selfishness, and you believe that Jesus is the Lord and Savior, he promises to save you, forgive you, and give you the gift of eternal life. And it's all because Jesus died for you. Let's pray.